So, uh, I got married a couple months ago um, to Holly, somewhere around here. It was awesome. Um, learning a lot of things about marriage and being a husband. Um, but one of those, one of the things about being a husband, right, and a boyfriend, whatever, is that you write letters for important things. You write notes for important things. And so I like to, for different occasions, we'll just say for a birthday, um, write Holly a letter. And I usually have some kind of specific purpose or goal um, that I'm trying to communicate with these letters, right? That I love her, um, that I'm thankful for her, that she's amazing. And But whenever I sit down to write these letters, I don't exactly outline what I'm going to say. Um, and I always, I, I like getting the like $5 Hallmark cards, like the cool ones. Um, and I always write in pen. And so there's no, when I'm writing, there's no like scratching out something that I've already written in pen. And so what ends up happening as I write is I have this goal, right? I want to say that I love her and that I'm thankful for her. But as different thoughts enter my head about um, specific things that have occurred uh, recently, um, different events that I want to communicate, this path to what I'm trying to say kind of wanders a bit. And I'm looking to connect different ideas. Um, and so it's never just, I love you, I'm thankful for you. Um, it's a little bit of a wandering path to, to what I'm trying to say. And I think our text is a little bit like that today. Not that it is a, a wandering path. I don't want to communicate that. But when you're reading through, it can get easy. It can be easy to get lost in what Paul is doing. He actually will leave certain hot thoughts hanging for a second to discuss something else and then come back and talk about them later. And when you're just reading... Um, it can be kind of confusing. So I think it would be helpful um, to start with this text with the 30,000-foot um, message in view. Um, so I'm actually going to kind of spoil a little bit uh, the surprise and tell you what's happening in this text before we read it, because I think that it's helpful as we, as we walk through it um, to know that. So um, from a 30,000-foot view, this text, and maybe if you have headers... Um, this text is about comparing Adam and Christ. And more specifically, Paul's comparing the negative effects of Adam's sin to the positive impact of Christ's death. So, some words that you could be looking for that fall under Adam are things like sin, death, trespass, judgment, and condemnation associated with Adam. Associated with Jesus are words like grace, gift, justification, righteousness, and obedience. And the big idea is that what, uh, what Adam really, really messed up, Jesus more than fixed. So we'll, we'll revisit that. But that, that's the big um, overarching message. And this passage is a restatement, actually, of what Paul has been writing about and arguing over the first four or five chapters um, so it's kind of like we've been on this path, uh, we're climbing up the mountain, and now we're at the peak, 
and we have a chance to kind of catch our breath and look back where we came from and see it in a little bit of a different light, but it's still the same, same message. So with that, I'm going to read uh, our text. It's 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and, of, and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, so kind of a lot. Um, seems like at different points the same thing is being said um, over and over again, and it, it might be a little bit hard to follow. So um, let's just, we'll just go through it verse by verse. Um, this first verse, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. So here, Paul's going back all the way to Genesis 3. So if you were around um, last year, we walked through Genesis, and um, this was a major theme. So he's going, he's going back to the time in the garden where um, Adam and Eve were, and he's recalling that sin came into the world through one man. And he's choosing... Adam as a representative here, even though Adam and Eve were both there, he's, he's saying Adam was the main representative here. So, uh, what, and what were the results of this fall in the garden? It's sin, which led to death. And so, but there's this idea here that sin, it's not just a straight line of sin leading to death. Uh, what Paul is describing here is that sin and death are actually a cycle. Um, just as sin leads to death, so death actually leads to sin. That's what he's saying um, in this, the second phrase. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so, you know, that sounds, okay, I, I get the cycle, but what, how does this exactly work on the ground? Like, explain this. So the basic premise would be this. Because death is a reality, right? We know our own mortality, mor morality. Um, we fear it, and we want to prioritize our own survival and try to gain as much happiness and fulfillment and 
whatever we think will make us feel good um, as possible. And we're willing to do whatever it takes to achieve this, whether it be um, actions against God or man. The threat of death causes us to sinfully protect ourselves um, at all costs. We're looking out for number one, um, and therefore choose not to love one another. It's like I have this word picture uh, of if life, right, we're all going to die. We're all trapped inside a burning building, and we know the end is near, but uh, we're all trying to get out, and we're willing to push someone else down the stairs or punch them in the face so that we can try to jump out the window. So, um, Robert Jewett, I think is how you say his name, uh, says in this verse that the consequences of Adam's fall are depicted as a kind of epidemic that swept over the entire world um, of just death and sin sweeping across um, to everyone. So now... If you have, um, like, the ESV, or I'm not sure what other versions have it, you'll notice at the end of verse 12, there's a hyphen. And um, Paul hits pause on uh, this statement that he just made because he feels like he needs to elaborate on something. And so, you know, we would expect, as we're reading, that therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so also kind of spoiler looking ahead, life comes through one man. There's a parallel. But he hits pause on it. He doesn't complete this thought because um, he wants to clarify something. And that is in verse 13 and 14. He says, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Here, Paul is bringing the Mosaic law, the Torah, into the picture. And he wants to clarify that this death that he he just spoke of um, applies to all men. Um, So first thing that we get out of this is that the law served to magnify the sin problem. Um, that we have. And if you've been around as we've worked through Romans, this is not a new idea. Um, That because the law tells us what we can do and what we're capable of, should we choose to do it, um, now when we sin, it's labeled as a transgression. And there is a calling for payment. And so in um, verse 13, where he says, but sin is not counted where there is no law. So the inverse, right? Sin is counted where there is a law. That's the transgression. But secondly, um, there were many Jews that believed there could not be any sin or death apart from the law. And so Paul wants to make sure to point out that because death, he says death reigned from Adam to Moses, um, that all people are sinful, um, regardless of if they had received the law or not, um, because everyone was subject to death. Um, So the summary here would be that nobody is unaffected by this sin-death cycle that he just described. He's saying to Jews, 
when you're sinning, you're actually most like Adam because you have a clear directive, you have a clear command from God, and yet whenever you choose to disobey it, um, this is this is magnifying the problem. But he also wants to clarify that Gentiles, you're not off the hook here. Um, you're just as sinful and you're just as subject to death as the Jews are. And he ends this introduction of, of Adam by adding that he is a type of the one who was to come. Or if you have the CSB, uh, it says a prototype of the coming one. The coming one, of course, being Jesus. And, and this is the premise on which the whole argument of verses 12 through 21 is built. Paul is establishing grounds for comparison, that the universal effect of the actions taken by these two men are similar, being, mainly being that one act affects many people, um, which we will get to. But so as soon as he says, hey, there's a similarity here between Adam and Christ, he immediately feels the need to talk about how they're different. Um, one commentator put it this way, to be sure, there is a superficial similarity between them in that each is one man through whose one deed enormous numbers of people have been affected. But there the likeness between them ends. How can the Lord of glory be likened to the man of shame, the savior to the sinner, the giver of life to the giver of death? And so the structure of these next three verses or three statements that Paul makes shows that Christ's gift um, is either A, not like Adam's transgression, or it's far more effective than Adam's transgression, if you will. And this first verse uh, falls into that second category. So verse 15 says, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the and the free gift by the grace of that one man Jesus Christ abounded for many. So first we have the language here between trespass and gift. And these words pop up all over in the next three verses. So Adam's trespass was a deviation from the way that God had set out and clearly shown him. Adam chose his own path. He knew it was right, um, but he selfishly um, desired uh, what he wanted. And that's contrasted against Christ's gift. So uh, look no further than Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, thinking about what was awaiting him and not wanting to go through the agony of being separated um, from the Father and also of the, the physical um, suffering as well. But he, chill, he still chose to willingly give himself up um, to offer this gift of grace to others. So here's an introduction kind of to the, the, a theme that will carry on through the rest of this passage. That grace... Um, oh, sorry. I should... Uh, pull where I'm, let me, uh, so at the end of verse 15, he says, uh, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And so here, 
is the introduction to um, this theme that's going to carry on through the rest of uh, this passage, that grace has not only nullified the effects of the transgression, but it's ushered in an extra measure of life. I really love the word picture that Paul gives of abundance, uh, that grace and life are just spilling out, spilling over, um, over this hole that the trespass has given. It's filled it and it's just like gushing out now. So verse 16, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So if you notice, the words between 16 and 15 are almost identical. Um, They're really similar. However, this time, the emphasis is on the consequence of the two actions between Adam and Christ. There's, it's clear. Um, Adam's action brought condemnation, while Jesus' action brought justification. Um, so, and there's even more happening in this verse than just highlighting this stark contrast. So it makes sense for judgment to follow after one trespass, logically. Um, yeah, you sinned, okay, judgment follows. But what we might not expect, or what, sorry, what we would expect is that as sin spread and more sins were committed, logically you would think more judgment would occur. Or, um, at the very least, since we kind of know, you know, we're good Christians, we know that there is an act of righteousness, maybe all these acts of sin would require many acts of righteousness as well to uh, nullify them. But um, grace operates with a different arithmetic. God uh, decides that only one act of righteousness is necessary to nullify all of these trespasses. Uh, Charles Cranfield said, that one single misdeed should be answered by judgment, that's perfectly understandable that the accumulated sins and guilt of all the ages should be answered by God's free gift. This is the miracle of miracles, utterly beyond comprehension. Um, I honestly had not spent a lot of time thinking about that. Um, And so I think it's just, you know, especially when somebody says this is utterly beyond human comprehension that grabs your attention. And so this idea that um, even when God was requiring uh, justice, uh, that there was still grace in that, um, this monumental act of grace. Moving on to uh, the last verse that is contrasting them. Paul says, For if because of one man's trespass, that one man is Adam still, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And so the theme from verse 15 is continued on here in 17, that Christ's free gift is far greater. Um, It goes beyond what uh, simply nullifying the effects of Adam's trespass. If you were here, I think it was probably two weeks ago, Drew talked about um, say you owed $100, and this this idea is that not only does someone come in and pay off your $100 for you, 
they deposit 500 more in your bank account. There's a surplus now. It's like Adam had the, uh, the initiative to build a house, we'll just say. But he took that and instead dug a massive hole. And Christ's gift not only fills in the hole, it builds a mansion on top. So uh, this act of grace does not just balance the act of sin, it overbalances it. So now that Paul is, is finished clarifying that there is a big difference between uh, not only Christ and Adam, but also their uh, acts, he now moves back to how they're similar. Verse 18 um, focuses on the actions of Adam and Christ, while verse 19 focuses on the result. So, verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. Adam committed a trespass, and he disobeyed. Christ committed an act of righteousness. He obeyed. Then, verse 19, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So the result which is talked about in both, um, but focused here in 19. The result of Adam's disobedience is that the many were made sinners, while the result of Christ's obedience is that the many were made righteous. And even while Paul's comparing these two, uh, he's contrasted them, now he's kind of moved to saying how they're similar, he is still clear that one is infinitely superior to the other. The fallout from Adam's sin is nothing compared to the um, greatness of Jesus' grace. Just a quick note, um, some people have looked at this passage uh, and used it to justify um, that whenever Christ died, he died for, uh, because it said, it says, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous, which parallels the many were made sinners. So uh, as I discussed, when Adam sinned, everyone became sinners. And so some people have looked at this passion and said, well, when Christ died, everyone became saved. Um, you didn't have to do anything. Like, you're good. But uh, without going too much into weeds, this is flawed for a couple reasons. First, it just flat out ignores Paul's insistence elsewhere in Romans and his other letters that faith is necessary to receive the gift of salvation. And that's actually even in last week's passage, Romans 5.2. And it also assumes that Paul went out of his way uh, to deny... Whoa, that's a typo. <laughs> so also it's, it's denying um, what Paul just went out of his way to clarify two verses ago. And that's that... There is an exact one-to-one mapping of Adam and Christ. And um, Paul's gone out of his way to say they're similar, but they're not exactly the same. So we can't look at verse 19 and say that because of one man, the many were made sinners, and then the many were made righteous, that all people were saved. So tying it all together is verse 20 and 21. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Um, remember what we talked about kind of at the beginning, verse 13. Paul argues that the law only magnified our sin problem. And it's, it's this idea of knowing what's right and wrong and then acting in the opposite direction is, is actually worse than had you not known at all but still made the mistake. Um, it's like whenever, maybe some of you guys can identify with this, when you were a five-year-old and you really wanted that Snickers bar and you took it from the store. That was still stealing. That was still wrong. But somehow whenever you're a 20-year-old and you take that <laughs> Snickers bar, it's like, come on, man. Like, you know better than that. It's, it's worse. So that's kind of, uh, that's what Paul is, Paul is getting at here. Um, you also may have noticed that throughout this passage and, and now here in verse 20 that death is portrayed as a ruler. It says that um, sin reigned in death. And uh, so death is subjecting people to its evil reign. But now through Christ's gift, the script is flipped. Now grace is the ruling entity. And it's abundant. It's overflowing. He said that several times to those who accept Christ's free gift. And this grace enables us to live a life uh, we never in our wildest dreams could have ever hoped to live. Tim Keller says, God's reckless grace is our greatest hope. So, but what, you know, we know what life under death looks like. We've lived it. Um, but what does living under this reign of grace look like? That's what Scott's going to talk about next. So take a few minutes. I don't know. I've never done this before. Go to the bathroom. Whatever. There we go. Like Aaron said, uh, our text today, Paul kind of goes off and he gets a little maybe poetic. But I think, like he said, he starts from a 30,000 foot view. I think what Paul does is, in some sense, he kind of climbs the mountain and he helps us survey like our identity, like the journey of our identity is, is really what he's serving. And he goes all the way back to the garden. He goes back to our creation. He goes back to Adam. And he says that through Adam, sin came and therefore death came. But through Jesus, grace came and therefore life came. He says our identity is either found in Adam and uh, in, in under sin that leads to death or it's found in Christ letting grace reign in life. And Jesus actually talked about this in, um, in John 3. He, he's talking to Nicodemus and he says, you know, actually, yeah, I think it's in, in John 3 where he describes being born of a husband's will. And, and then, you know, a husband's will or a wife's will, just the, the flesh kind of gives birth to flesh idea is, is what he was alluding to. He says, but, but you must be born again. You must be born anew, born from above. And so even, even Jesus alludes to this, you must be remade in His image. So we're, we're made in God's image, but we're children of Adam under sin until Jesus comes and makes everything right. And um, through His one sacrifice for all, now we can have life in Him. And like Aaron said, it's not just, Jesus didn't just come to, um, to make our life better. We were dead. You, you can't get better dead. And what Jesus does is brings us back to life. He, he gives us new life. Um, and so he says, you know, that, that it's in this life that we can let grace reign. 
So that's a, it's an interesting phrase. What does it mean to let grace reign? Um, and I think it's maybe, maybe a better way to ask it or a different way to ask it is, what does it mean to let what Jesus has done shape the way you think about your past? Think, the way you shape, think about like what happened to you or, or what you've been through uh, or what you've done. And how, how, do we, how do we let what Jesus has done shape um, our present circumstances or our present opportunities? Or how do, we, how do we let what Jesus has done shape the way we plan for our future, the way we think about who we want to become and, and where we want to go and what we want to do with our life? So how do, that's, that's letting grace reign. That's letting the grace of God through Jesus and what, the gift that we've been given, that's letting it reign in our life is, is by letting it redeem the past and help us see our present opportunities and circumstances in light of Him, in light of what He's done, and helps us think in terms of like where we're going in the future. Um, and so I think that's, that's part of it. And I think there's two significant truths that we need to embrace, that we need to kind of wrap our minds around, that we need to really grab a hold of in order to let this grace reign. And this is coming up for me at a good time because I, I've been feeling for the past several weeks, and I've talked to Drew about this, and I've talked to others, but um, feeling like Romans is so big and heavy and, and, and sometimes complicated, and maybe we've complicated it because Drew and I find ourselves spending every moment of free time trying to wrap our brains around just the very next text that we're getting ready to teach because there's always a lot there and, and Aaron got to feel that a little bit this week there's just every week there's something that's like okay there's some room for debate on what this means and how do we and, and I feel like maybe we've gotten caught, gotten caught in the weeds a little bit too much in Romans and not been able to embrace the, the truth that's being taught that is incredible. And so I wonder for some of you, like if you've been able to have a connection with what's being taught in Romans, like if you've been able to have an emotional connection to the truth and the reality of what Jesus has done. And I think if not, I think maybe these two truths can really help because I think they're pretty significant. I didn't come up with them. Um, a guy named Michael DeFazio these are his ideas. He probably stole them from somewhere else. I don't know. He maybe come up with them because he's pretty smart. He's a professor at Ozark. He teaches New Testament. He actually teaches Romans. Um, he he and I he met with Drew and I back in May to kind of help us map out this year in teaching Romans. Really helpful, incredibly resourceful for us. Um, and he's actually going to be our our winter retreat speaker. So I I guarantee you, if you've heard him before, you probably will do whatever you can to be at winter retreat because he's that. Good. He's one of the best communicators I know. But anyway, he, he says these two things that I think we need. The first one is this. To let God's opinion of you define you. Think about that. What would it mean to let God's opinion of you define you? What would that mean? So we, we allow lots of things to define us. Um, whether it's what we do, um, I, know, I know all of you were asked this question when you were graduating high school and everybody's wanting to know what you're going to do, do in the next step. Maybe it's college, maybe it's trade school, maybe it's get work or whatever. But everybody's wanting to know, and you feel this incredible pressure 
to have to give them a plan that sounds awesome. And so everybody's pre-med or pre-law or pre-something. I'm pre-med, by the way. I'm also pre-law. I'm also pre a lot of things, meaning I haven't done anything. I'm just, that's just something that could happen in the future. Um, so we feel, this, we feel this pressure to like, yes, I'm going to go do something big. And um, sometimes we allow that to define us. Uh, or maybe it's what, what you have. Um, maybe you have maybe gifts and talents. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's material things. Maybe it's physical things um, that you feel like, this is, this is what I have. This is, this is what defines me. Or maybe it's what others say about you. Maybe it's wanting certain people to like you. Maybe it's wanting certain people to be impressed by you. Um, but what is it that defines you? And what this is saying is, what if we let God's opinion of us be the final definition of us? Be the ultimate definition of us? And the second one is this. What would it mean to let Christ's death determine God's opinion of us. To let Christ's death determine God's opinion of you. See, what we need is both of these. We don't just need one, we need both. Because here's why. If we believe the first one, okay, if we buy into the first one, that God's opinion of me is what defines me, and we don't buy into the second one, you'll be like my friend um, who I worked with in college, okay, Haley, I can't remember his name, okay, I can remember his face, um, he was probably a guy in his late 40s, um, straggly, blonde hair, thinning on top, big glasses, uh, this is the part I definitely remember, coffee stained teeth, he drank coffee all day long, coffee breath all the time, and he and I worked together, he was full time, I was part time, I worked at Sears Automotive on the sales floor, I sold tires and brakes and front end parts, and um, and had to make up for all, when the mechanics would make a mistake, I would have to be the one to bear the brunt of the angry customers. And so he and I worked together, and, and cop, topics of faith and church came up quite a bit. Um, he was always asking me what I was doing and learning at, at, at college. I went to a Bible college, went to Ozark in Joplin. And, um, and so he, the, the topic of church came up, and I would ask him if he wants to go to church, and he would always say something to the effect of, oh man, the day I step into church is the day that church burns down. Or the day, when I go to church, the church is going to be struck by lightning, or it's going to go up in flames. It was always a fire analogy. It was always something. <laughs> something with fire. Um, and, and, and so you understand what he's saying. What he's saying is, I, I believe God's opinion of me is what defines me, but God's opinion of me, of me is based on all the things that, I, that I've done. Like, I, there's no way God could accept me. Like, I've done so much. I've so many things. So maybe that's, is, uh, that could be you. Maybe you've bought into the first one, but you haven't quite bought into the second one, and you still believe this idea that the things that you've done are just, there's no way God could forgive. Early on in my walk with Christ, this, is, this was me. I would, I would fall on my face again. I would mess up or something, and, and I would purposely not go to God because I was too ashamed. And so I would punish myself. I would make myself feel bad. I would, I would feel like I had to like, make sure I read the Bible a couple days in a row before I could actually talk to God. Like somehow I had to um, you know, punish myself so that I could, now I can have your grace, God. And that was just a really bad understanding of God and His grace. That was a, buying into the first one, 
not believing the second one. But what if you bought into the, the second one, but not the first one? You'd be like this girl that Tim Keller, speaking of Tim Keller, Aaron mentioned earlier, he's a pastor at a church in, um, he's getting a lot of, a lot of shout out tonight. He's a pastor at a church in, in New York. Uh, but early on in his ministry, he was meeting with this high school girl. Their parents kind of brought her um, to him, and she was struggling with a lot of things. She was kind of pulling back from the family and hiding and from you know in a room and not wanting to come out and just struggling with relationships. And so he they brought her in to talk to him. So he's asking her what's going on. She's telling him it's maybe maybe typical high school drama. Some friends that were mistreating her and a boy that didn't like her, um, and 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 those things were impacting her so much that she was wanting to just kind of pull away from everyone. And so he was asking her about church and asking her about her faith and asking her if she was there yesterday at Sunday. It was Monday of their meeting. You were there yesterday? Yeah, I was there. Because the day before he preached this message that he thought this would be perfect. It's, it was a preaching on justification by grace through faith. That, that it's, not, it's not what you've done. It's what Christ has done. It's that, uh, that you are made righteous in His sight. And so she actually went on to kind of explain like this is what you said. Um, you said you talked about Jesus, and you talked about like by grace through faith in Him that we're made righteous, and that we're justified by what He did, not by what we do. And and He's like, that's awesome. So does, doesn't that help? And she's just like, no, because my friend still mistreated me, and this boy still doesn't like me. So I don't, I don't see the connection. So what what she's describing is an, just an apatheticness towards Jesus and what He's done because. She really hasn't decided to say, okay, God, your opinion of me is, is what defines me. Oh, yeah, yeah, Jesus died for me, yeah, okay, and now I get to go to heaven, okay, great. But I still, <laughs> I still don't want to go to school and face these people. Because she hadn't quite determined to say, God, your opinion of me defines me. And because of what you did on the cross through Jesus, that's what determines your opinion of me. And so I want to ask you, do you believe both? Because you need both. You've got to buy into both. We need to buy into both in order to be the kind of people who aren't grip, gripped by, by guilt and shame that holds us back from God. We, we need both to, be, um, to not be the kind of busy people that stay busy so that we don't have to think about the turmoil that's going on inside of us. We need both um, to be the kind of people who doesn't just use the right language, say the right things, act the right way around church people to kind of make ourselves sound better than we really are. That's a temptation for us, especially for those of us raised in the church. To, to, to say the right things, to use the right kind of struggling, you know, yeah, I just need to let, I just need to make Jesus my identity. I'm just really placing my identity in the right, wrong things. Like, those things are true, and can sound like you really got a grip, a grasp on your, your relationship, but really they're just churchy words if they're not real. And, and so to be the kind of people that, that gets rid of that fake crap and just says, no, I, this is who I am, this is where I'm at. We, we need both. We need to recognize both. We need both to be the kind of people who, who does more than just go through the motions who personally understand why someone would give their life to the gospel or even for the gospel. Uh, we need both to be the kind of people who want to deep and lasting peace 
because we know that we're loved and we have purpose that, that lasts not just for now, but for all of eternity. Like We need both of these. So, I want to stop, and I'm actually going to give you a few minutes. I want you to take some time to reflect on uh, which of these is hardest for you to believe, or, or maybe another way of saying that is which, which of these are you tempted not to believe? And, and this is just between you and the Lord, so you get to be as honest as you possibly can be with Him. But if you're sitting there and you're looking at those two and you're like, okay, I can remember, I can remember choosing to, to say, okay, God, I'm going to let you, what you say about me, define me. I'm going to, all right, I'm going to live in light of what you've done for me on the cross. If, if you can remember doing that, then just take some time to thank God for those moments and praise Him for, um, for, for those, those decisions that you've made. But take about three minutes, and I want to allow you to just reflect, and then I'll have a couple things to say, and then we'll, de- we'll be done. <clears throat>
So, many of you know I have a daughter who's a senior this year, and uh, as a father who is getting ready to send a daughter off to college, hopefully she actually, I think she's planning on sticking around here, which is great, but I now am feeling the weight of this decision. You know, for, for you to be able to, to decide to let God's opinion of you define you and, and let Christ's death um, determine God's opinion of you, to me, makes all the difference in the world. Because I've, I've, we've had students, I've been doing this now nine years, and I've had students sit where you're sitting that have gone on, and we try to stay connected with our alumni and, and keep up with them. We're having an alumni event this Saturday here for homecoming, and we're hoping as many can come just to catch up and see how they're doing. And the reality is some of them go on, and, and they've done this. They've, they've embraced these two things, and they go on, and they get involved in a church, and they raise their family to know Jesus, and they start serving others and serving the Lord, and, and, and you can see evident of, evidence of fruit in their life and, and God using them for His kingdom. But we have others that have sat where you sit and have taken notes diligently and have been in table groups and have come on a regular basis who just, after a couple of years, they get out into the real world and it's a little harder to get connected to church, so it's easier to not... It's not like it was in college, you know, and you just kind of drift and fade, and before you know it, they stop <laughs> returning our calls, they stop showing up for things, and some of them have want nothing to do with Jesus. And I would say it's because they didn't at some point say, okay, I'm going to trust God for what He says about me, and I'm going to let it define me, and I'm going to base that definition on what He did on the cross. And so those two things, I think, are huge. And so that's what's at stake. And those two things, I think, are going to help us as we go forward in, in chapter 6, 7, and 8, which are incredible chapters. So like Kelsey said, next week we're off, but then the following week we're going to tackle all of chapter 6. Um, and in chapter 6, is, it's, it's full of uh, helping us see how the gospel frees us from sin and unites us, unites us with, with Christ through baptism, and then ultimately in, in His resurrection. Chapter 7 is going to talk about the problem of sin taking advantage of our, weak, of our weaknesses and waging war on our minds. The word, the word mind in Romans is actually kind of a really interesting word that we'll talk more about when we get to 7 and 8, but um, Paul, Paul really believes that the gospel can free your mind. So I know, I know that will be huge. And then chapter 8. At chapter 8, we're going to spend four weeks on because it's so good. It's the great 8. Some believe the greatest chapter in the Bible. I don't know. I, I tend to agree. And so we're going to, we're going to talk about it. it, it, it chapter 8 is about embracing the assurance of God's salvation through Jesus and how the Spirit will make our minds new. So in order to kind of go forward, you really need to grasp these two things. So I hope that happens. Let me pray, and then, uh, then we'll transition to the next thing. God, thank you for um, this time that we've had with, 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 uh, in your word and with your spirit. Like, like Aaron said, I'm thankful that your spirit is here. I'm thankful 
um, that he is at work and uh, ask God that you would work and uh, multiply any effort that we've had here for your purposes. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So as, um, as Jake and Alec and Allie come up, I want to ask you to turn to your neighbor, talk about what's the furthest place you've been from home and why, and then we'll, we'll get started.